millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The man of the future. We ask some big questions of Dorothy Dix and get some surprising answers. Silence is no longer golden. And paging Dr. Ping, one of Australia's secret sporting heroes. And we go back on the chain gang. I'm Michael Adams. I'm Mick Luby. This is the Wayback Week, and we're about to take a deep dive into stories from the fourth week of June, 1929. 1929, the fourth week of June. What's happening? Uh, well, I was kind of hoping you were going to start with Dr. Snook. Dr. Snook? Dr. Snook sounds very much like a Dr. Zeus character, doesn't he? He sounds like a friendly kitty delight. He was not. Even with his kind of famous veterinary invention, the snook hook. It sounds harmless, doesn't it? It does, but he was not a harmless chap at all. So in 1929, this week, he was uh, behind bars and trying to kind of work out what he'd done. He couldn't believe that he'd actually murdered his lover. He was a nasty piece of work. But uh, to all intents and purposes, was a fine, upstanding citizen, a veterinary professor. And also a bit of a sporting hero. He had won gold at the Antwerp Olympics as part of the US Olympic pistol team. So he was seen to be quite the straight shooter. But he, Oh, very good, but he had a dark side. Mm, he was having an affair with a woman named Theora Hicks, who was a medical student. And... Uh, that, that kind of went pretty wrong, didn't it? It didn't go too terribly well. No, no. It, it ended very badly when her body was discovered in a field which was a popular spot for shooting. Yeah, he'd, be, he'd actually been there a few days earlier shooting with cops, teaching them, you know, the art of the pistol. Mm. And then mm. she chose this place to then murder his mistress and dump her body. Yeah, and... Brutally, she, the, the body was um, in, in a very bad way and the throat was cut. There was blood everywhere. So he wasn't particularly clever in terms of, you know, covering up because he, he, he killed Theora Hicks in his car. Claiming that uh, eventually when he did fess up that she was going to out him and, and the whole affair to his wife. This all came out in in his trial. The jury, however, wasn't buying any of it. it took twenty eight minutes to decide he was guilty, and uh, they sent he was sentenced to the to the electric chair. He was buried under the name of James Howard, uh, which was his first middle and name. middle name, mm. uh, in Greenlawn Cemetery in Columbus, Ohio. They didn't want to actually put his surname on the headstone because they thought it might become you know a, a grisly tourist attraction. But according to one Ohio website, there are rumours that his ghost haunts the spot. So watch out for Dr. Yeah. Snook and his hook mm. if you're ever at Green Lawn mm. Cemetery in Columbus, Ohio. Mm. Yeah, it'd be a nasty ghost to encounter. Mm. A pistol in one hand and a, and a mighty fine shot and a, and a snook hook in the other. Mm. 
Yeah, steer clear. Steer clear. Well, mm. that was a grim way to begin. It was a bit. It was a bit dark. Yeah. Have you? Can we? Can we? Can we lift the mood? We can lift the mood. There was another criminal before the courts this week, while Doctor Snook was uh, confessing to all sorts of crimes this week in 1929 another high profile criminal Robert Burns no relation to the Scottish poet was uh, also in the newspaper he was being sent back to a chain gang in Georgia uh, now he had been on a, on a chain gang in Georgia in the 20s uh, after being convicted in really dubious circumstances of being involved in a very minor robbery. This guy was a World War One veteran. He had shell shock. He met up with some dudes who then robbed some somebody of about $5 and he was lumped in with them as being responsible and got hard labour on a chain gang for years. And then he escaped. And he escaped and went to Chicago reinvented himself as a successful magazine editor and was a respected citizen in Chicago for seven years until he had a falling out with his uh, wife who dobbed him in uh, as being an escapee and there was a massive campaign to to stop him from being sent back to Georgia on the chain gang because you know he'd made a he, he was a, a he was a model of rehabilitation in terms of, you know, he had made something of himself and made himself a respectable citizen. But this week in 1929, he was sent back to Georgia uh, under an agreement by which he would only do um, a, a few months and he wouldn't be put on the chain gang. When he got back to Georgia, guess where he was sent? Uh-oh. Where did he go? He went back on the chain gang. They completely betrayed him. So he escaped again. Got away again. Good on him. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me because I've always thought that you know, mag most magazine editors are escaped criminals. <laughs> That's very true. Yes, where's my invoice? Oh, yes. Well, well yeah, the, the check will be in the mail next week. Exactly. Exactly. But what's great about this story is that on his second stint as an escapee from the Georgia chain gang, he was living you know, incognito in New Jersey and he wrote a memoir called I Am a Fugitive from a Georgia Chain Gang exclamation mark. I love that title. It's what am I going to call title. what am I going to call my story? <laughs> I know. The, the the autobiography was a sensation. It was picked up by Warner Brothers and they made a movie of his story I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang which starred Paul Mooney and it was the film was made with Robert Burns acting as a consultant while he was still on the lam. The film was released while he was still at large and the sort of incredible amount of uh, public support for him meant that when he was re-arrested after the film was released, the governor of New Jersey refused to uh, send him back to Georgia and then so, event eventually he was pardoned. So it was Hollywood. It was movie magic that got him finally released movie and free. Movie magic, indeed. And I mean, we've seen this film. We watched it a few weeks ago. Oh, it's a great, uh, yeah, and it, it's a great glimpse of the times of the, the sort of uh, the poverty all over, and the hard scrabble, and and the kind of the brutality. And it's probably worth pointing out that he was white, yeah. not black. And the great sort of, well, I, I guess a lot of the history that we're aware of is of black chain gangs, but this was very much, uh, you know, chain gangs for all. 
Yeah, that's right. But the, his expose of the chain gang system and the brutality that was sort of institutionalised in Georgia and in the South mm. led to some reforms uh, being enacted to give prisoners better conditions and better rights. That said, the chain gang system did continue for decades. Yeah, uh, yeah. But quite an amazing final, spoiler alert, final moment in the film is, is you know, him receding into the shadows saying that the only way he can get by is by stealing um and i love the fact that you know this film had to end on a on a bummer note because the guy it was about was still a fugitive from justice here he is the man who preferred death to the tortures of the chain gang his was the most sensational escape in chain gang history crawling through the thick brush bloodhounds at his heels hiding in swamps he outwitted his pursuers at every turn. This man has lived a thousand lives in one. So Mick, do you know what a Dorothy Dixer is? No, I don't. What's a Dorothy Dixer, Michael? A Dorothy Dixer in Australian slang is a question much like the one I just asked that then allows me to give a detailed, prepared answer seemingly off the cuff in response to that setup question. But it's named for Dorothy Dix, who I don't reckon she's well known these days, but in the first half of the 20th century, she was one of the most famous women in the world for her advice column, which was read by tens of millions of people all over the world, including Australia. She was quite something, Dorothy Dix, and thanks to Australian politicians of all things, her name has lived on with these sort of nonsense set-up questions. And in some ways... Our Aussie pollies have been doing her a disservice because the question being sort of set up and fake suggests that Dorothy Dix was making up her advice column questions. You don't and think from, she was? I don't think she was. This is a woman who, I mean, if you want to, who was the real Dorothy Dix? It was a, it was a pen name of a, of a celebrated crime reporter, Elizabeth Merriweather Gilmer who took on the pen name in 1895 when she pretty much decided she'd had enough of grisly crime reporting. She trademarked that name, and by the 1920s, she was a household name around the world. She was known as the foremost sob sister, confessor to the emotionally puzzled, agony aunt supreme, the most inspiring advisor since St. Paul, and the world's highest paid newspaper woman. She was named, I think, the highest paid woman writer this week, or there certainly is a headline in the Adelaide News this week, the 27th of June, 1929, that says, yeah, she's uh, the highest paid woman writer in the world, and mm. she earns more than the President of the United States, who was Herbert Hoover at that point. So, yeah, yeah. she was super popular. But that was the lingering question. Was she actually inventing these questions so that she could answer them, or were they real, or was it a mixture of both? Uh, it could have been a mixture of both, but I still say that she uh, she could be suing the Australian politicians for uh, for slander on this one, because <laughs> the, the questions that they ask in Parliament are total sort of setups and... What she was doing was, as many people noted at the time, was providing this service to women of the world and men. There's a piece that I found, a profile piece from this week, 1929. So she's at the height of her fame, pretty much. Dorothy Dix, the woman everybody knows and the woman nobody knows. Every day, 
33 million people in every country under the sun turn to her for a personal message. Every day a thousand men and women, boys and girls, write to her and unburden their hearts' secrets. She's the highest paid newspaper woman writer in the world, earning more than the president. She has often been called the best love woman in the world. It goes on to say that strange tales have grown up around her, that her identity is a mystery and all this. One popular rumour had it, in strictest confidence, that Dorothy Dix was actually a group of six college professors, each of whom conducted the column <laughs> once a week. There's Dan, of course. There's Dan Brown's next plot. There you go. It would be, wouldn't it? And there's, there's a nice line here. Of course, you must be a man, argued one male correspondent, because no woman could understand us so well. Here's a question that was posed by a reader, Mrs. E.E., supposedly. Dear Miss Dix, why is it that the loveliest women often choose the ugliest men for husbands? And why is it that handsome men are often attracted by homely women? These were the big questions of the day. Well, that is a big one. Yeah. Mm. And are you suggesting, Michael, that Dorothy made that up? Well, I just think if she's getting thousands of letters, wouldn't it be easier just to make them up and then you can just supply the answer you've already formulated? I think every now and then she'd think, I've got a good one. I've got a nice piece yeah. of advice. I'll formulate a question. But for the rest of the time, she's got this mountain of correspondence coming in. She'd only have to pick up a few and say, oh, that's a good one. I'll answer that one. I'll answer that one. Here's a good one for this from this week. Dear Miss Dix, I am endeavouring to keep company with a girl of 18. My own age is 17. I love her immensely. She has a quiet disposition whilst I am brimful of fun. Do you deem it advisable that we continue our friendship? I love her name of Agnes, signed Anxious Athol. Now, this is how Dorothy responded. Dear Anxious Athol, you sound a healthy boy full of fun. Well, he has actually said, I am brimful of fun. <laughs> she, Throw it back at him. She continues, and I think you have written to me just to let off a little steam. Cheer the girl up. Tell her you love her very name. Surely to goodness she will laugh at that. She sounds a quiet soul, but with your brimful of fun nature, you should find you should be able to brighten her up. Blah, blah, blah. Keep brimful of fun. The best sort of man always laughs at trouble. A cheerful spirit is half the battle. So I think she was phoning that one in. Oh, that's pretty harsh. What about the time when someone asked her, a young woman, <laughs> wrote in saying, my future husband, whoever he may be, uh, may or may not know about my false teeth, should I tell him? And her response was, oh, well, well, keep well. Your... her response was, her response was, <laughs> Yes. Her response was, keep your mouth shut. Fantastic. Is that, well, that was it, just See? keep your mouth shut. Well, I think it works on a couple of levels. Mm. It was, that, that was seizures, though. Was, I thought that was a good, that, was that that's good pretty advice, good. Though? Sooner or later, he was going to find she, out when she left her false choppers in a cob of corn. She's an entertainer as well. It's True. a good line. It's a very good line. Now, in a way back week scoop, online sources will usually say that the term Dorothy Dixer was first used in Australian politics in the 1950s. But mm -hmm. here we go. I did find reference to it in the Argus on the 25th of March, 1944. What? Uh, that is way backer. <laughs> that is way backer indeed. A little uh, piece of 
Canberra commentary here said, Miss Dix is sometimes mentioned in Parliament, so it was obviously something that you'd probably find earlier references to in Hansard. Yeah. Miss Dix is sometimes mentioned in Parliament when a member asks a minister a question and the minister is able to give a somewhat detailed reply on the spot that is prima facie evidence of pre-arrangement, a not unjustifiable procedure on such occasions, members usually interject another Dorothy Dix. So, and it says here, Miss Dix, you will remember, achieved some sort of fame by answering questions sent to her by persons who were worried about all kinds of problems ranging from love affairs to bunions. So, <laughs> so it wasn't... That's a, quite a range. Yeah. It wasn't actually known as a Dorothy Dixer at that point. They were just called Dorothy Dix questions. So, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So... Dorothy Dix, I mean, it's funny that she was so famous then, barely known now. And they're still asking those Dorothy Dixes. They sure are. How good are Dorothy Dixes? Oh, how good are they, Michael? This was a big week for the movies in Australia. Uh, talkies had been introduced with the jazz singer a few months earlier. But by this time, by June 1929, uh the talkies had just about taken over. Every advertisement was 100% talking, 100% sound. And the silence, some of the some of the cinemas were already offering their final silence program. Um, and do you think it was a bit like computer graphics these days, you know, that we've, we overdo them, we're going to look back in years to come and say, gee, we went a bit over the top just because suddenly we've got computer-enhanced sort of animation. We went a bit nutso. And those early talkies went a bit sort of crazy with the sound? Well, they they didn't necessarily go crazy with the sound, but they didn't really understand. Well, the, the recording apparatus was really clunky, so they couldn't... The, the silent films had developed this real agility where there was, you know, beautiful visual expression. Mm. And all of a sudden, the actors had to be tied to these massive microphone sound recording get-ups and often they just stand around in a scene stand around a table with flowers in the middle of the table which is you know where one of the mics was was concealed and just rattle off this really stagey dialogue so the early most of the early talkies were extraordinarily clunky but people still love them um you know mm. it was novelty especially the fact that there was now music and and sound effects but that was also putting uh thousands of musicians out of work because for you know decades the movies had been accompanied by live musicians you know, some cinemas in australia had as many as 25 people in the orchestra and all of these men and women were now out of work like something like mm. eight, eight thousand jobs were endangered in that first year across australia just as the depression was about to hit as well so uh in this week as well there was a big battle as to which uh, sort of technology would be used in cinemas, uh, which talky projection system would be used. And, of course, the American uh, big companies wanted a monopoly, wanted their machines to be the only ones that were going to be used. But a local bloke named Ray Alsop had developed a, a machine called the Rakerphone, which was a talky projection system, and he was engaged in this whopping battle with the American big American companies who 
were claiming that his invention wasn't up to snuff in terms of quality and therefore if it was installed in cinemas they would then deny their movies to those cinemas so you right. know, your local your local theater operator who installed a raker phone suddenly would find that he wouldn't be able to get any fox films or any paramount films or rko films but this guy stood his ground ray also oh. and he and he actually won like the the government intervenes and the the big American combines back down and Raker phone was installed in about four hundred cinemas around Australia and was a one of the formats for the next decade. Oh, that's great! It's but in great the long story. run, in the long run, well, yes. But this Raymond also what a, what a character! He was this pioneer of radio. Um, mm. He was an engineer for Australia's first radio station, Two BL. But in nineteen twenty one. He claimed to have invented an invisible ray that destroyed metal. That's handy, right? It is handy. So, not a bad one for the war effort. Yeah. So he was only twenty-three at this point, and he claimed to have come up with a ray that could completely disintegrate uh, a small piece of iron, like a two-inch piece of iron, from a distance of a few feet. But he was working on a much bigger version. Which would then be able to, you know, presumably destroy battleships at you know, a range of miles and all the rest of it, and nothing ever came of it. So I don't know if he was making it up, or I hope he wasn't making it up. I'm picturing one of those kind of uh, Warner Brothers scenes where there's what? So he'd remove the ship, all the metal just disappears, and all the sailors are just suddenly dropped <laughs> into the in, into the ocean. I have a feeling it might have actually destroyed the sailors as well. Oh, okay, but they're not metal. They're not metal. I think it might have been more to the point that this Ray could just about destroy anything. But Ray, he never went ahead with any... There was never any further mention of this invisible Ray. And thankfully, he turned his attentions to uh, radio and then to making talkie machines. And uh, the Rakerphone brand was well known back in the, back at this time. It's a shame about Ray. Hmm. Gee, his notes might still be out there. Let's hope no one finds them. Yeah. Mr. Raymond Alsop, who claims to be able to destroy iron and steel with an invisible ray. Hmm. Oh, it, it sounds like a it sounds like a plot from a Superman episode. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, especially the fact that his name is Ray. Ray with mm. the killer ray. Yes, <laughs> that does add to it. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So also this week... Sad in sad news, mm. one of the biggest Hollywood stars of the time died suddenly. Oh now, no! I didn't hear this. Now Who this, was that? This is Strongheart. Oh no! Not Strongheart. Strongheart, the German Shepherd, who was well. We all kind of have vague ideas about Lassie and Rin Tin Tin these days, but Strongheart was the very first canine superstar. He came out of uh, Germany in. Uh, after World War One, he'd served in the war. He was a, a brave German shepherd. Uh, he served? On, on which side as a German oh, shepherd? 
Oh, on the German side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, he his original name was Etzel von Oringer. Uh, he was an Alsatian. He was a big dog. He was fifty-seven kilograms. But um, after the war, he uh, he was discovered by an American uh, director. Chatting um, up, chatting up the poodles in a in a milk bar somewhere. Exactly. So yeah, they brought Strongheart to Hollywood. Strongheart made a stack of movies and was quote when it, when he died this week he was described as leading dog of the movies he'd been in 30 films he was 13 mm. years old he there was also a mrs strongheart with mm. who he, who went by the name of lady jewel that was her screen name lady jewel and strongheart were an item on screen and off one of their movies apparently uh, resulted in a big litter of puppies being born subsequently and right. very 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 weirdly there was a guy named J. Allen Boone, who was a Washington Post correspondent, and he also looked after Strongheart. And after Strongheart passed away, this guy, J. Allen Boone, became a spiritualist and decided that Strongheart was actually a super being, and he wrote two books. Uh, one was called Letters to Strongheart, and the other one was called Kinship with All Life. And this, these recounted his uh, ongoing communications with the spirit of Strongheart. So Strongheart uh-huh. was also a strong spirit. Uh, he does sound it. I, I do. I couldn't help myself. I did go looking, and I did find that to this day there are a lot of people who claim to have the great great grandson or daughter dog of Strongheart out there. Yeah, well, they I, claim to have sort of followed his his lineage. His lineage, yeah. He and well, he and Lady Jill did uh, pump out a lot of puppies. So suck on that, Rin Tin Tin. Yeah, I, I did take a look at a couple of the clips of Strongheart and it, I was a little underwhelmed. I'd like to think maybe his best work <laughs> hasn't been preserved. <laughs> well, this is it. A lot of the silent films are lost. So, yes, mm. that maybe. But he was beloved at the time. The Australian, oh. Australian newspapers were, you know, avidly reporting on his every movement. Oh. And, you know, he, he, there was a, uh, a, a newsreel, a silent newsreel, where he and Lady Jewel were in their supposed dog apartment, sitting on couches mm-hmm. and wandering around. And, mm-hmm. Mm, yes. Not smoking. Not smoking. It was a simpler time. Oh. Well, simpler he didn't, times. He didn't smoke on camera. You've got to, well, you got to keep, keep yourself nice for the fans. Yeah. And did he have a stunt dog? I think that was the point. I think he was able to do all of these sort of, you know, physical feats himself. Top dog. Top dog. Poor mm. Strongheart. Strongheart, mm. R.I.P. Absolutely. Farewell, Strongheart, who now, is, still, is still around in some form or another. Have a look at your German Shepherd if you're listening. Yeah. Have a close mm. look. There might be a little glimmer of Strongheart in that pooch. And speaking of strong spirits, back in Australia this week, we had a rather famous dancer visiting. And who, pray tell, was that, Mick? Well, I'm glad you asked, Dorothy. <laughs> it, uh, this would be Anna Pavlova, the famous exiled Russian prima ballerina who was touring the world and uh, in, with, with great excitement, Australia uh, welcomed her. This was her second visit down under. She'd been here in 1926 as well. That's right, and she was a huge hit then, and she was a huge hit this time around with gushing reviews for all of her shows, and her mere presence was getting all sorts of coverage. And 
it was a lot of the talk was about her you know, vivacity, her energy, her incredible kind of verve, which, which sadly is, wouldn't, which sadly wouldn't last. But she was actually forty-eight at this point. So mm. I read that she toured Australia. She did something like a hundred and I think she did one hundred and twenty shows in four months, which is one a day. And as we all know, mm. ba- ballet is extremely physical, extremely exhausting. So oh, I, it used to exhaust me in my mm. ballet days. You still look great in a tutu, Mick. Thank you. I imagine you still do. Oh, I still do. I'm wearing one now. In Anna's honour. And she was uh, apparently informed by doctors, like after this Australian tour, that she had pneumonia. And uh, she pretty much said, well, I'd rather die than not dance. And sure enough, within the year, she died of pleurisy. Yeah. Just shy. Well, I think they said to her, you can have an operation, but you'll never dance again. Right. And she said, well, I'd rather die than be unable to dance. The thing is, in Australia on this tour, she actually was quoted as saying, I live for applause. So she hmm. she was true to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And she left us with some, um, not just the lasting impressions of her performances, but some weird predictions under the headline Pavlova's forecast from a, a, an Adelaide newspaper from this week. Before long, women will not wear skirts says the famous ballerina. It will be all trousers for stepping into aeroplanes. Skirts will not be known. <laughs> She's a mm. little bit off on that one. A little bit off, but, mm. you know, still, it was worth a, worth a go. Why not? She, she could have been right. And as far as we know, she didn't forecast that her name would live on in the form of a meringue. No. Now, what, mm. is, what is the truth behind this? Australia claims to have invented the pavlova. New Zealand claims to have invented the pavlova. Who invented what? the pavlova? Well, it was a chef, as far as we know, but it's, it's debated about where the chef was at the time and uh, where it came from and uh, you know, who can lay claim to it. It's Australasian. Can we Aust- go with that? We can, but then there's some uh, a New Zealand and Australian... Uh, historians who teamed up a few years back to trace its origins and they controversially came up with the conclusion that it had been invented possibly in the United States possibly in Europe it had been around for a long time before someone slapped the name Pavlova on it yeah but that was the genius there was the oh, branding ah I see that's what the Australasians did <laughs> they just took something and went oh here we go that's right. And then yeah. they whack some kiwi fruit on it if you're mm-hmm. over the ditch. Yeah. Or passion fruit. Which one are you, Michael? Are you the, the kiwi fruit or the passion fruit? I will go either way. You know what? Right, I right, really right. will. But what I find really intriguing is this is something we all, well, I really like it. But we like turkey in Australia, we have it once a year. Hmm. Hmm. Or, or, or not at all for the vegetarians among us. Well, you don't have pavlova because you're a vegetarian? Oh, have, well, that, that'd slice, be the vegans. The vegans slices would of bacon on yours <laughs> instead of kiwi fruit. Mm-mm, bacon pavlova. So um, you do think that it was named for... It was oh, it was clearly named for pavlova. Uh, yeah, I think we can go with that, yes. But ne- yes. not necessarily invented. There was a previous dish called strawberries pavlova, which was doing the rounds in 1911. Oh. Mm. Strawberries being the famous ballerina... Long before Anna. Well, Anna had, old been, Anna had been going as long as Dorothy Dix. She'd been, well, not quite as long as Dorothy Dix, but she'd been a famous dancer by the time she got to Australia for oh, close to 20 years, I reckon. That's right. 
So she thoroughly deserved a, an Australian dessert in her honour. Didn't do as well as Melba though. She had two. Peach Melba. Yeah, but and the Pav. Toast. But the Pav lives on. It's shortened to Pav. It's mm-hmm. it. I, I think I think the Pav. I think the Pav gets it. Do you think that it's sad that we've lost the? Well, do you think it's sad that we no longer name dishes after celebrities? I think it's 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 we've lost. Yeah, we've lost a great big slice of our culture right there. What else? What what could, who could we? Who could we lord with a, a dish? I'm going to say Angelina's jelly. Mm. Mm, the Trump steak. Margot ribeye. <laughs> oh. No? It's a no, no to all of those. Okay. No, no, I like them. I like them. Dish, that- dish them up. Dish them up. <laughs> In sporting news. Oh, Yes. We now cross to the pavlova of the horse racing world. A lot of Australians actually aren't aware that Farlap, our great horse, our great horse in inverted commas. Why inverted commas, Mick? Well, because, because he was a New Zealander. He was the Russell Crowe of the horse world. He was, because we claim him, because we're happy to have him. But it's, it's actually very rarely mentioned that he was a New Zealand horse. He was bred over he was born and bred over there. But in the in June of nineteen twenty nine, this week, he was just starting to make a name for himself in Australia, having been snapped up for a bit of a bargain by a local trainer. Yeah, they didn't really rate him, did they? They thought he was a bit shit. He was described as gangly. Mm. Yeah. He'd notched up his first win as of this week and within a few months he'd be all but unbeatable. From 19, so from 1929 on, he won 36 of his 41 races. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but in this, in the context, in this historical context, he timed his run very nicely with radio and newsreels just sort of hitting their strides and the Great Depression was setting in. We needed a big-hearted hero. Yeah, and, yeah. And in Farlap, we, we hit the jackpot. So, his name... His name. Who named Farlap, Michael? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the hazy official story has always been that an Oriental gentleman came up with it. Then in 2003, as far as I can tell, this sports journalist, uh, Michael Rennie, worked out exactly who that gentleman was. He said, I recalled a scene from the film Farlap in which a young man of Asian appearance is present at track work in Centennial Park and is asked jokingly, what the word is for lightning in his language. He replies, Farlap. And so the name is born. In the film, this gentleman is called Mr. Ping, so I wondered if this account was factual. Apparently it was, because Tommy Woodcock, Farlap's strapper and trainer, was present during the making of the film, and that scene was based on his recollections, on the strapper's recollections. So this Mr. Ping, Aubrey Moore Ping, was a friend of Tommy Woodcock's, and he was at the track in 1928 and offered up a word that means lightning in Siamese or Thai, as it is called now, as well as it, it is also, it's the same word in southern Chinese Zhuang dialect, which Aubrey's father spoke. What I found interesting as well is that the claim was that the anglicised version of Farlap uh, was F-A-R-L-A-P. Mm. six letters and yes. that they had changed it um, mm. to seven letters 
P-H-A-R-L-A-P, because the previous winners of the Melbourne Cup had all had seven letters. Yeah, so I looked, not I, that we're superstitious or anything. Not that we're superstitious or anything, but I then looked at the 20 years of Melbourne Cups before 1929 to see how many actually did have seven letters. And I like know, this commitment. I think it was said that like the previous three Melbourne Cup winners had all had seven letters. Right. But in fact, the most recent one was 1925 Windbag. <laughs> oh, that's great. Then in 1923, there was Batali. Then right. in 1920, there was Poitrel, P-O-I-T-R-E-L. But mm. then uh, you go back to 1916, Sassanoff. And then 1912, Piastre. So there had mm. been five in the past 20 years, which is not exactly every single Melbourne Cup winner has seven letters. Yeah. Just, just, there's a, just saying. Yeah, sure. There's a few holes in the story. The story I heard was that it was Dr. Ping himself who suggested the pH, that he oh, was right. around. And when they said, oh, damn, we want we want seven letters. Farlap's great with an F, but it's only six. And Dr. Ping, who apparently was quite the, uh, the word smith and loved his word puzzles said easy make it ph poor old dr ping actually died in 1983 which was the same year the farlap movie came ah. out so let's just hope dr ping wasn't poisoned also in the news this week amazingly enough articles everywhere about robot bank tellers in england the westminster bank was spending a hundred thousand pounds on robot bank tellers, which they said were pretty much, you know, able to do addition, keep books, uh, all sorts of things that human tellers had been doing. Were they able to read notes from bank robbers when they were handed over <laughs> saying, give us all your money? One of the newspaper reports said this, every stage of the figure work from the time the customer hands the cheque over the counter to the final balancing of the bank's own ledger is being turned over to various types of machines. The old-fashioned passbook will soon be a relic of the past. But then mm. in 19, 1985, the Canberra Times, the robot teller race hots up. So this was about ATMs being you know, rolled out in the 80s as they were. Well, these are, yeah. The, the ATM is a descendant of one of these robot tellers. But what happened in the sort of intervening 50, 60 years where we didn't have robot tellers? Do tell, mm. So this week in 1929, Dr. Oscar Riddle told the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, you shall be as gods. He said that uh, a new race of men immune from disease and endowed with genius was just around the corner. Was he a friend of your mate, Ray? He wasn't, no, but I reckon these two, if they'd teamed up. Mm. Mm. And throw, yeah, and throw in strong heart. Exactly, throwing strong heart. He said the man of tomorrow would be, I'll just read it, on the streets or crossroads, the man of tomorrow may meet a man-made giant or a man rendered specially resistant to disease or a man of overpowering intellect, all specially perfected by the knowledge, skill and effort of man himself. But the very first thing they were going to tackle, Mick, was height. <laughs> oh, good, good. First things first. Yeah, so the capacity of physical growth will doubtless first be exercised by doctors on those of small stature 
and later there is every reason to expect that they will be able to add a cubit or two to the height of everyone. <laughs> now, a cubit, do you know what a cubit mm. is, Mick? Is that the distance from your elbow to the tip of your finger? Very, very good, yes. The unit is that is right? Based, yep, on the forearm length from the tip of the middle finger to the bottom of the elbow. And of course, because people are different sizes, a cubit That's a hell of a lot. varies between about 18 and 21 inches. Mm. So at its maximum, this guy was proposing that the average man's height could be increased by about a metre, which I just right. don't think is physically possible. So I think Dr. Riddle, even though he was acclaimed as a uh, biologist and I think made the cover of Time magazine about 10 years mm. later, he was a little bit off on this one. That's all the time we have this week. Join us next week when we go way back to 1949. Until then, for those of us who are emotionally puzzled, it seems only right to go out with a word or two from our old friend Dorothy Dix who said, I have learnt to live each day as it comes and not to borrow trouble by dreading tomorrow. It is the dark menace of the future that makes cowards of us all. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.